This is Manna at Valley Baptist Church. Together, we take an in-depth, expository look at God's Word. So open your Bible and join us as we do life together. And now, here's Brad Hannick. Fellow students, if you would open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1. I've got to admit, this is intimidating. The book of Romans is so deep and so rich and so powerful that I approach this with fear and trembling. Uh, The epistle of the Romans has had a profound impact on the church of Jesus Christ over the last 2,000 years. Virtually every revival that's come about in the last 2,000 years has started with much prayer and, interestingly enough, the exposition of this particular epistle. It's changed the lives of thousands and thousands of Christian leaders. In AD 386, Aurelius Augustine, who was later known as St. Augustine, was living a life of sexual depravity. He was convicted of his sins, but he was unable to conquer them until he read Romans 13, verse 13 to 14, which says, Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. God used the book of Romans to save Augustine from a life of debauchery, and he became one of the most influential Christians in history. Martin Luther was a Roman Catholic monk. He didn't have the problem of sexual uh, uh, looseness. He was really plagued by a lot of guilt over sin, and he fasted and prayed and literally beat his body, treated it very, very severely, trying to drive the sin out of his life to no avail until he read in Romans 1.16, the righteous man shall live by faith. God opened his eyes to understand that it's not Our righteousness, it's Jesus' righteousness, which he gives to the person who exercises faith in him. And when he understood that, it completely transformed his life. And in 1517, he nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church Castle, which began the Protestant Revolution, completely changed the face of Europe. And most of us are here today because of that event. On May 24th, 1738, Interesting Englishman named John Wesley attended a meeting at Aldersgate Street in London where someone was reading the preface of Martin Luther's commentary on Romans. Now, Wesley had already come from Britain to America as a missionary, and he had failed miserably. When he heard the preface of Martin Luther's commentary to Romans, he decided to trust in Christ alone for salvation Completely transformed his life. He later founded a Methodist church and led great revivals in Britain. So the, the, the book of Romans has had a massive impact on the church of Jesus Christ. The apostle Paul, of course, is the author of this epistle. And he had several reasons for writing this to the Roman church. Paul had not yet visited Rome, so he was unknown to them by face and Largely, his reputation had preceded them, but he didn't know them. So he was writing a letter to them for several reasons. First and foremost, there were quite a few conflicts in this church. Imagine that. First century, they're fighting with each other. Sounds like 21st century, right? And these conflicts were between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. 
Now, remember, in AD 49, all the Jews were expelled from Rome. The Emperor Claudius expelled them all because Christ was very divisive to the Roman system of emperor worship, so he threw all the Jews out of Rome in AD 49. This was the Claudius who was later poisoned by his fourth wife, Agrippina, so that her son Nero could assume the throne a little ahead of schedule. And, of course, he did. Uh, he became emperor in AD 54. And when Claudius died from poisoning, the Jews were let back into Rome. But the conflicts in the Roman church had only escalated. They had gotten worse. So Paul wanted to unify this Roman church around the truth of the gospel. And so he wrote Romans to really explain what is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Second reason Paul wrote the book of Romans is almost everywhere Paul had planted churches, and he had been planting churches now for a number of years, better part of 10 years, he was followed by a group called the Judaizers. And these were Jewish false teachers who followed Rome from church to church and taught the new believers in Christ that faith, faith alone in Christ alone was not enough for salvation. You also had to be circumcised, obey the Mosaic law, do all the Jewish rituals. So they were teaching that faith was not sufficient for salvation. It had to be faith plus a whole list of Old Testament works that they had followed. So the gospel was God's only plan for salvation, not faith plus good works or not faith and keeping the law. Paul wrote the epistle to the Romans to demonstrate that the gospel that he taught, the gospel he had been preaching, fulfills the Old Testament that promised a coming Messiah and the role of both Jews and Gentiles in God's plan. The third reason Paul wrote the Roman epistle is he was planning on going to Spain. So he was going to come to Rome, and then he wanted to begin a missionary journey to Spain and plant churches in Spain, and he was hoping that your church in Rome would support his efforts to bring the gospel to Spain. The last thing, the last reason Paul wrote the epistle is he wanted the church to be unified, not just so they would get along. He wanted the church to be unified because a church that loves each other exalts Jesus Christ. Jesus told his disciples in John 13, 38, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for each other. It's pretty hard to preach the gospel that Jesus Christ is the God of love and brings people together in unity when you're arguing and fighting and name-calling and bickering, which was going on. So Paul wrote this gospel, this book, this epistle to bring Jews and Gentiles together under the truth of the gospel so that the mission of evangelism would bring people to Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ would be glorified. So ultimately, the purpose of the letter was to glorify God, and for you and I, that is true today. All things should be done for the glory of God. The theme of Romans, which we're really going to unpack in a couple of weeks, actually, next week, Lord willing, but the theme of Romans is chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by his faith. There are six major sections in this book. Rob's going to put them on screen for you. By the way, we're going to be here for a while. 
Uh, Romans will probably take six months, maybe nine months, however the Holy Spirit leads us. But I've had some of you ask, we're going to stay here for as long as it takes. How about that? So we have six major sections in Romans that we'll do, Lord willing, the next couple of weeks, the introduction and the theme, the first 17 verses. And then we have five S's for memory's sake. We have sin that chapter 118 to 320 covers. Then Paul transitions into salvation for a couple of chapters, then sanctification, then sovereignty, and lastly, service. Let me unpack these a little bit for you. The introduction to Romans, the first 17 verses of chapter 1, really talk about what the focus, what the theme, what the central ideology, if you will, of Romans is. Frederick Godet, one of the great commentators on Romans, says, for what is the epistle of Romans? And here's his answer. Romans is the offer of the righteousness of God to the man who finds himself stripped by the law of his own righteousness. That is the gospel. The book of Romans is about the gospel, what it is, how it's acquired, what a gift it is, what God wants to do in and through us as a result of it. The gospel is meaningless unless you understand, first of all, that you need it. That's section number two, sin. The core ideology of sin is very simple. God is righteous. All people are sinners. Sin, the wages of sin, is death. We will perish because we are sinners and God hates sin. No one can be justified in God's sight based on their own self-effort, their own good works, their own character. So what's the solution to human sin problem? Salvation, that's chapter 3 through chapter 5. And the solution is, is that Jesus Christ offered himself as the only sacrifice for sin. And therefore, salvation from sin and reconciliation with God are through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, full stop, period. Not faith plus works of any kind. By faith alone. After you are saved, do we just stay where we are? No, God has an entire lifetime plan after salvation. As a matter of fact, salvation is the beginning of your new life, not the end. The process of growing more and more like Jesus is what we call sanctification. It's progressive holiness. It's where God the Holy Spirit shapes us day by day by day, more and more into the image of Jesus. And that's chapter 6 through 8. God's grace frees Christians from bondage to sin. And through the indwelling Holy Spirit, Christians can experience increasing victory over sin's power in their lives. Now remember, at the moment of salvation, we were freed from the penalty of sin. The wages of sin is death. Jesus Christ took our penalty at the cross. So the penalty for sin is no longer applied to you. We have eternal life in Jesus Christ. The power of sin is still with us. We still live in a fallen world. We still have a sin nature. So even though we're going to heaven, the penalty of sin, we're not going to hell, has been paid. We still have this struggle, this battle, this ongoing warfare with sin that continues throughout life. As the Holy Spirit continues to work in us and shape us like Jesus, the power of sin should diminish in our lives. I realize some of you are looking at me going, that's not been my experience, Brad. <laughs> it's not where you are today. It's where you came from 
and most importantly, where you're going. This is a lifelong journey. Paul could say at the end of his life, I am the chief of sinners. So this battle against sin is never going to go away. But you are more like Jesus today than you were five years ago based on the power of the Holy Spirit and your obedience and your submission to that power. Fifthly, sovereignty. Paul spends three chapters on one of the major questions that was happening in the Roman church. And this is, what is the role of the Jews and what is the role of the Gentiles? For 2,000 years, God had been working with the Jews as his emissaries, his ambassadors, to bring the gospel to the world. And now they rejected him, and so he's now working with the Gentiles. Paul says, that is temporary. That is not permanent. God has temporarily set aside the Jews, poured out his grace on the Gentiles, but according to his sovereign plan, he has a future plan for national Israel. All through the New Testament, Paul spends three complete chapters on how he will use the Gentiles to bring salvation to the Jews and the future for the Jewish nation. And then lastly, the last three or four chapters from chapter 12 to chapter 16 are all about service. In light of what God has done for us, in light of what Jesus has done for us, we should give ourselves completely to God and serve him in practical godliness by loving and serving others. So this book follows the standard classical Pauline epistle. The first part of most of Paul's epistles are doctrine. It's what to do. It's what the principles are. It's what we believe. The last part of most of Paul's books are practical. So in light of what we now know, what do we do? So chapter 12 through 16 are how do we live out the truth that we learned in the first 11 chapters? This is very classical Paul. So this epistle follows this doctrine. I'm kind of wound up, aren't I? This, this is good. This is good. So the introduction, which we're just going to do today, to the book of Romans is the longest and most theologically complex of any introduction that Paul wrote. The first seven verses are one sentence in the Greek, and they go 107 words without a comma. You know people that talk like that, right? Right? So let's unpack it. Verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Here's the principle. The gospel is the good news that God loves people and sent his son, Jesus, to pay the penalty for their sin by dying in their place so that whoever believes in Jesus will be forgiven and live in heaven forever. Let me repeat that. The gospel is the good news that God loves people and sent his son, Jesus to pay the penalty for their sin by dying in their place so that whoever believes in Jesus will be forgiven and live in heaven forever. By the way, if we've got your email address, we send these summary points out to you, so please let Crystal know that. So Paul is the author of this book. Paul's Hebrew name, by the way, was Saul, which means asked for or prayed for. His Greek name was Paul or Paulos, which means small. And history tells us at least what we know, that he was probably no more than about 5'2", five, 5'3", five, a short guy. He was born of the tribe of Benjamin. He was born of an ultra-Orthodox, devout Jewish family. He was a Pharisee. I was a member of about 6,000 members of an ultra-Orthodox Jewish sect who rigorously attempted to keep all 613 commandments in the Mosaic Law. Your whole life was spent trying to 
rigorously keep these commandments. Now, many of these 613 commandments did not come from God. They were man-made traditions called the tradition of the elders, but they were treated over time as if they had the same weight as, as if God had given them at that point in time. Now, Paul was born a Roman citizen, and that conveyed many, many privileges, many, many protections for him, which enabled him to carry the gospel throughout the empire. He was born in the city of Tarsus, probably about the same time as Christ. He was a contemporary of Christ. He was probably born, as far as we know, 5 B.C. to 5 A.D., but generally in that neck of the woods. Rob is going to show you a map of, of Tarsus in the Mediterranean Sea. You'll notice that Tarsus is located modern-day Turkey. It's the far eastern edge of the Mediterranean Sea in the Roman province of Cilicia, which is, of course, modern-day Turkey. And in Paul's era, this was a world-class trade city, port city, and a world-class university. About age 13, Paul moved to Jerusalem, began studies with a celebrated rabbi, Gamaliel. And by the time he had graduated from there, he acquired the equivalent of a PhD in Judaism. You know the story. As Christianity began to spread throughout the empire, Paul persecuted Christians fiercely. He imprisoned them, killed them because they taught that you could be right with God through faith in Christ without keeping the Mosaic law. And Paul was all about keeping the law. So he persecuted Christians intensely. And you know, as he was on the way to Damascus to arrest and imprison more Christians, about 33, 34 AD, Christ met him on the road, threw him on the ground, blinded him, and called him to be an apostle. In an instant, he went from being an enemy of Christ to being a champion for Christ. And of course, he began to teach immediately that Christ was the promised Messiah, and the Jewish religious leaders who formerly had subsidized his travels immediately began to try and kill him. So in order to escape death, he spent three years in Arabia, southeast of the Dead Sea. Uh, Arabia is um, really the whole area that historically was Moab and Edom. It's the east side of the Dead Sea. Today, that's contemporary modern-day Jordan. And during that period of time, that three-year period, he was taught directly by the Holy Spirit. So he got an enormous amount of revelation during this period of time. What's interesting is... Paul didn't go from conversion to immediately being a productive missionary. He spent a lot of alone time with the Lord, being taught by God before he had something to say. It very much should speak to us that spending time alone with the Lord every day is going to be essential if we're going to have anything significant to say. So between 40, AD 47 and 57, Paul made three missionary journeys, which Rob's going to show you today, throughout the Roman Empire. He planted churches, obviously preached the gospel, and spent a fair amount of time writing letters to these churches, encouraging them. So a good chunk of the New Testament was written by Paul, and a lot of them are his letters that he uh, wrote to the various churches he had planted. The church at Jerusalem was undergoing severe poverty because of their persecution, and he delivered a monetary gift from the Gentile churches to the church in Rome, and while he was in Jerusalem, he was accused of the Jews by defiling the temple, by bringing a Greek into the temple, which had not happened. He was beaten by the Jews, arrested by the Romans. He spent two years in the Roman legal system. You think we have slow justice? Well, that's probably epidemic with any empire. He was never convicted of any crime, and he appealed his case to be tried by Caesar. So he basically said, I'm going to appeal to the Supreme Court. The emperor 
was the supreme authority at that point in time. So he was sent to Rome, and he arrived there, as you know, after a life-threatening storm and shipwreck. While in Rome, he was confined to house arrest, and he wrote the prison epistles, uh, Timothy, Titus, Philemon, when he was in prison. He was released for a period of time, and then rearrested about two years later, executed as a martyr by being beheaded on the Ostian Way at Rome in about 65, 66. So he probably died somewhere in his early to mid-60s. The emperor Nero ordered his execution. This book, the book of Romans, was dictated by Paul when he was at Corinth, near the end of his third missionary trip, probably about 56 to 57 AD. So Paul was in his mid-50s when he dictated this book. His secretary, or Amanjuessus, who wrote, who actually wrote Paul's dictation, was named Tertius. We know that from chapter 16. And the woman who carried this letter from Paul in Corinth to the church at Rome was named Phoebe. She was the, uh, a fellow uh, uh, disciple who carried the letter to Rome. Rome, of course, as you know, was the capital city of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire at that period of time, which Rob will show you a map, was rather extensive. Rome itself was located on the Tiber River, which is about 15 miles from the Mediterranean Sea. At this period of time, about 50-some A.D., Rome, the city, had a population about 800,000, 800,000 to a million. The Roman Empire itself had a population of about 40 to 50 million. Now, the city of Rome was really a dichotomy. It had these beautiful, massive, wonderful public buildings, and there were huge areas of slums where people lived in incredible squalor and poverty. The Roman Empire was well-connected with roads, so transportation, land transportation, was pretty easy because they'd put a lot of money into road construction. We don't know who founded the church at Rome. It was certainly not the Apostle Peter, contrary to what some people believe, because Paul, at the end of chapter 16, has a list of 20-some people that he knows in Rome that he writes to, and he mentions them by name. He doesn't mention Peter. He almost certainly would have mentioned Peter if Peter had founded the church. It's highly likely that Jews from Rome were visiting Jerusalem during the Passover, heard the Apostle Peter preach at Pentecost, Acts 2 and 3, became converted to Christ, went back to Rome, founded the church. That's probably what happened at that point in time. And Paul says he is a bondservant. He describes himself as a bondservant. The Greek word is doulos, and it means to bind. Uh, it most often refers to involuntary enslavement of an individual for the rest of their life. About 15 to 20% of the Roman Empire was slaves, and most of them, many of them, were military captives. Rome was, of course, a conquering empire, and so they captured the slaves and brought them back as a result of their conquests. The Jewish concept of servant was a higher one. The Jewish concept of a servant was that you could voluntarily choose to serve your master for the rest of your life because you loved your master. And that was Paul. Paul had voluntarily devoted himself as a slave of Christ because Jesus Christ had bought and paid for him with his own blood, and he's done the same thing for us at that point. A servant, by the way, has no will of their own. A servant lives to do the will of their master. You and I, like Paul, have been called to be servants of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, number one, I'm a servant of who? Of Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus. Christ or Christos is the title of Jesus. His title, it means anointed one. 
Christ means anointed one in the Hebrew, it means Messiah. So Jesus, or Joshua in the Hebrew, means Yahweh is salvation. So Jesus is his name, Christ is his title. And Paul says, I was called, I was designated, I was set apart by God for this specific activity. God's given me a job to do, and I'm going to do it for the rest of my life, which was to take the gospel to the Gentiles. He says, I am, I am an apostle. An apostle is one who was sent. One who was sent with a commission by someone in authority. So in the secular world, when you use the word apostle, it you probably represented a king. You were an apostle of an emperor or a king, which means you represented that king or that authority. Biblically, if when we use the word apostle, it usually is talking about the 12, the 12 that followed Jesus Christ. In order to be considered a biblical apostle, you had to have seen the risen Christ. Of course, the 12 disciples did, with the exception of Judas. And Paul, of course, saw Jesus on the road as well. So Paul was given direct revelation by the Holy Spirit, saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, was commissioned as an apostle, and wrote 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. 14, if you include Hebrews, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. And Paul says, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ, I'm an apostle, I was set apart for the gospel. I was commissioned by Jesus Christ for a specific job. Now the truth of it is, the application for us is, every single one in this room bear the name of Christ, if we belong to him, and we are set apart for the mission, for the ministry that he called us to, because every one of us have been bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus. Therefore, we are not our own. We don't own ourselves. We are owned by our master. It's amazing to me that God would use human vessels to carry eternal truth to transform human lives. Every Sunday in this church, almost, you can see eternal business going on at the altar. Does not that just amaze you? That God, if you could see the invisible, the Holy Spirit is down doing eternal business with people and changing their lives forever. And you and I witness it because we see it so frequently, we think it's common. It is amazing. So Paul says, I'm set apart for the gospel. The gospel means good news. The gospel is used over 13 times in Romans. The Romans used the word gospel to describe a herald. So a herald would announce good news about the emperor. The emperor has gotten married for the fourth time. The emperor now has, you know, child number three. So it was, a herald would herald the good news about the king. So the gospel of God is God's good news for people. And of course, the good news is though our sins have separated us from God, God sent his only son Jesus in the world to pay the price for our sins by dying in our place so that we can have a relationship with God and anybody who believes in it and trusts that Jesus paid for their sins is freely forgiven and has eternal life. Now that's eternally good news. I don't know whatever good news you call good news when your grandchildren call that's good news. But when you go to heaven forever, and your sins are forgiven, that's really good news. So the gospel is an invitation to believe, and it's also a, a command to be obeyed. The gospel is all about God. And the word God in Romans occurs 153 times. Once every 46 words in Romans, God shows up, because it really is all about him. Verse 2. 
which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. Here's the principle. The gospel is about God's son, Jesus, who is physically born as a descendant of David, just as God promised in the scriptures. The gospel is about God's son, Jesus, who is physically born as a descendant of David, just as God promised in the scriptures. Now, Paul was very careful to define the gospel because he had been accused of preaching a new gospel. He had been accused of, you're making this up. This is not from the Old Testament. You're inventing this out of your own mind. And Paul wrote Romans to demonstrate, no, no, no. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, has been promised in the Old Testament for centuries and centuries. The Old Testament is filled with prophecies of a coming Messiah who would save his people from their sins all the way back in Genesis 3.15. So the gospel, the center of the gospel, is all about Jesus Christ. And Paul's emphasizing two aspects of Christ. Number one is humanness, which we're looking at now in verse 3. And then secondly, his divinity in verse 4. So you see Christ's humanness in verse 3. He was born as a physical descendant of David, just had been prophesied. Jesus was a real flesh and blood living historical man and lived in the land of Israel. He performed real physical miracles, which of course Andrew talked about this morning. These miracles were seen by hundreds of eyewitnesses. This is historical, documentable history, flesh and blood, space and time. His disciples heard him, touched him, walked with him, and ate with him. So Jesus was a real historical man. When Paul was speaking to Jewish audiences and trying to convince them that Jesus was the Messiah, he always used Old Testament scriptures, Acts 17. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus who I am proclaiming is the Christ. So the Jews had crucified Jesus, the man, God-man, and Paul is now going to these various Jewish synagogues in all these countries, and he's saying, this Jesus whom the Jews crucified is in fact the same one that the Old Testament prophesied for hundreds of years. Jesus is the Messiah. It's not a new gospel I'm preaching, Paul says. Look, I'm preaching that had which been prophesied for centuries and centuries and centuries. The Old Testament spoke about him, and I'm telling you that this Jesus is the Christ. And of course, that's his humanness. Now you want to see his deity, you take a look at verse 4. Who was declared the Son of God with power, by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's the principle. Jesus has always been God's son. But at his resurrection, he was appointed by his father as the reigning king over all creation. Let me repeat that. Jesus has always been God's son. But at his resurrection, he was appointed by his father as the reigning king over all creation. This is one of the most crucial doctrines about the person of Jesus Christ. He is both fully God and fully man at the same time. His divine origin is pretty obvious. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He had an earthly mother, Mary, line of David, that's his humanness, but his origin was 
from heaven. He was declared or designated or appointed the Son of God. We get our, our word horizon from this word, and it means to distinguish. John MacArthur writes, Just as the horizon serves as a, de, a clear demarcation line dividing earth and sky, the resurrection of Jesus Christ clearly divides him from the rest of humanity, providing irrefutable evidence that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, this word, Son of God, is a title and also a description of his essence. It means that Jesus Christ is the same essence, the same nature, the same substance as God the Father. We would say Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has the same DNA as his heavenly Father, right? in the same way that your biological children have the same DNA as you do. We call it, we say colloquial things like, well, they're a chip off the old block. You know, when you look at the children, you go, well, we know who their parents are. You're going to look at them and see it. Well, it's the same thing. Jesus Christ is the exact same essence, and his resurrection validated his claim that he and the Father are one. Now, understand, Jesus did not become God's Son through his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ has always been the eternal Son of God. However, at his resurrection, the Father appointed Jesus to a higher level of authority and power and declared him to be the Son of God by resurrecting him from the dead. That's not a change of essence, but it is a change of status and it's a change of function. And we know that because Philippians 2.9 says, Therefore, as a result of Jesus' humiliation, coming as a servant, dying for our sins, on the death of a cross, the essence of humility. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Matthew 28, the Great Commission, Jesus said, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth, therefore go and make disciples. He also claims in John 3, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. So Jesus, as eternal God, has always had all authority because He and the Father are one. However, as a result of Jesus, the God-man's humility, crucifixion, and resurrection, God the Father exalted Jesus the Redeemer, the risen one, to His right hand as the Messianic King. So Jesus both the Son of David in His humanness and the Son of God in His deity has been exalted, and He is the one and only God-man. There is only one God-man. Fully God, fully man, at precisely the same time for now and eternity. There is a man in heaven, physical body, named Jesus Christ, and He sits and stands at the right hand of His Father. And His physical resurrection body is a picture of the one we're going to get, and I can't wait. Because this one's not working too well. So all of this occurred, this exaltation, this humility, through the spirit of holiness. This refers to the Holy Spirit. The entire ministry of Jesus Christ, he submitted himself to the Holy Spirit. Everything he did was in the direction of power of the Holy Spirit. When you look at Jesus' ministry on earth, you notice he was always in prayer. He was always spending time alone with his Father. He was always submitting himself to the power of the Holy Spirit. We know that the Holy Spirit filled Jesus at his baptism when, 
when the Father declared, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, we know that everything he did was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And as a man, of course, he came to identify with us, suffer with us and suffer for us. But at the same time, Jesus came as God in the flesh and he overcame sin and death by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, he, he, he's both fully God and fully man. And it's hard to understand this. And yet it is seen throughout his ministry. John MacArthur points out an illustration. Remember in Mark 4, Jesus has just finished a huge day of ministry. They're in the boat. They're rowing across the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is so tired, he does what? He goes in the back of the boat and falls asleep. He's human. He's just like us. He falls and he's exhausted. A big storm comes up and the waves are so high that it threatens to swamp the boat. The disciples wake Jesus up and say, Lord, we're going to perish. And he stands up and does what? He says, peace be still. He commands the storm and the storm turns into calm. How can it be, this is the paradox, Jesus was so tired he fell asleep and yet he's omnipotent God and he stills the storm. That's his humanity and his deity all at the same time. Another example. I like this one. Matthew 17. Jesus records, Matthew records in Matthew 17, that Jesus had to pay taxes. Just like you and I have to pay taxes. That make you feel better, right? Yeah. I don't know who his CPA was, but it didn't sound, you know, it was a poll tax. So he was a human citizen. He was subject to the laws of the land, just like we were. So Peter says, we have this poll tax. Jesus says, here's what we're going to do. You go to the Sea of Galilee, throw in a hook. The first fish you catch has a coin in its mouth. Take the coin, pay our tax bill. He's got to pay taxes. That's his humanity. How he pays the taxes, that's his divinity, right? I know you'd like to do that. Let's see, shazam, you know, send that money to those people, yeah? So it's his humanity and his deity, and it's all through his ministry. You see this happen all the time, right? So this Son of God is Jesus Christ our Lord. This is a formal title. Jesus means Savior. Christ means anointed one, which has to do with anointing the king, as part of their coronation soil, you, you poured oil on the head of the king when they were coronated. So God the Father anointed his son Jesus Christ as king to rule and reign over all creation. The name Lord means God or master, and of course it, it talks about supreme authority. So Lord Jesus Christ, when you see this formal title, Lord Jesus Christ means the God who saves and reigns. Lord means God. Jesus means Savior. Christ means King. Lord Jesus Christ means the God who saves and reigns. By the way, there's no such thing as accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior and rejecting Him as Lord. That is not biblical in the slightest. When Jesus Christ comes into your life to save you from your sins, He comes in and He takes over. You cannot call yourself a Christian and tell God that you're running your life your way. That is not how God operates. He does not take orders from his creation. He is God. Jesus is not our pal. He's our king. And citizens 
obey their king. It's not a democracy. We don't elect him, and he's not going to resign, and you can't impeach him. He's king, right? Forever king. Verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith through all the Gentiles for his name's sake. Here's the principle. The gospel calls us to God for salvation and sends us out for service so that the name of Jesus will be honored when people trust and obey him. The gospel calls us to God for salvation and sends us out for service so that the name of Jesus will be honored when people trust and obey him. And of course, Paul is mentioning Grace and apostleship. Now, grace is, of course, unmerited, unearned favor that God shows to guilty sinners. Grace means that salvation is a gift from God. Yes? Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says it's completely separate from any human effort. It's impossible to earn a right relationship with God. Romans 3 tells us, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. The gospel tells us that salvation is a gift. And all we do is respond and receive by faith that gift of God's grace. So grace is unmerited favor that God shows to guilty sinners. And so he calls us to himself for salvation through grace. But he doesn't stop there. After we're saved, he sends us out. That's the apostleship part. Paul was an apostle with a capital A. I mean, he was an apostle, first century. You know, he saw Jesus, he did miracles. We're all apostles with a little a. An apostle is someone who's sent out with a message. Have you been sent out with a message? Of course, Matthew 28 tells you to go and make disciples. All Christians are apostles in the sense that every Christian has been commissioned by God to go make disciples. And Paul uses the word we here. We have received grace. We have been given an apostleship. He's talking about you and I. Jesus sent us to carry the message of salvation. D.L. Moody, an evangelist of the 18, probably 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, was used mightily of God, even though his early education was virtually non-existent. One night, a man came up to Moody after, after an address in Chicago and told him that he had made 11 mistakes in his grammar that night because he counted Moody, Moody said, I, I probably did. You see, my early education was very limited and faulty, but I'm using all the grammar that I know for the cause of Christ. How about you? How about you? Are you using everything you have right now for Jesus? The purpose of doing that is to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. Bring about the obedience to the faith of people who don't know Jesus yet. Genuine faith always produces obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just one-time obedience for salvation, but obedience throughout life. Someone who says, I'm trusting Jesus for salvation, but I'm running my own life. No, does not work. And the whole point of bringing the gospel to the nations, the whole point of missionary work, the whole point of bringing salvation by God's grace and proclaiming the gospel is for His name's sake. The ultimate motive for telling others about Jesus is not because we love the lost. 
or we feel sorry for the lost. Because most of the time, we don't. True? Own it. Come on. Ultimately, the motive for telling others about Jesus is because we want Jesus Christ to receive honor. We want Jesus Christ to be glorified. We want people to know him so they can honor and worship him. And Jesus Christ is high and lifted up. Any motive other than the glory of God will not last under adversity. Because sooner or later, Brad Hannick will not love the lost enough to bring the gospel to him. Only the motive of the glory of Jesus Christ will be sufficient to carry us through that adversity. Verse 6, Among whom you also are the called of Christ Jesus. To all who are a beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the principle. Christians are set apart for both salvation and service. If you are saved, you should be serving. Christians are set apart for both salvation and service. If you are saved, you should be serving. Paul uses the word called. In the New Testament, this word doesn't mean somebody's yelling at you. It means God has effectually called you and you respond. It's an effectual call to salvation. He has elected you, as we found out when we studied Ephesians, from before the foundations of the world, he knew your name and you're written in his Lamb's book of life. And when he calls, you respond. And he says, I've called you to be saints. Now, a saint is a holy one. Better, it's a set-apart one. So someone who's holy has been set apart from sin and set apart for God, right? If you are married, you are set apart for your spouse. Yes? So you have privileges and responsibilities with your spouse that no one else has. And that's a great privilege, and some of you are going, that's a great bondage. I understand. <laughs> it's a great privilege to be set apart to love and serve your spouse, and it's a great privilege to be set apart by God for God's use. Anyone who trusts in Jesus Christ as Savior is set apart by God for salvation and for service. It's God who does the calling. Our job is simply to respond to that call. This week, understand that God has set you apart for himself. He has called you to himself to save you. And for most of you in this room, that's already occurred. But he's also called you to do things for him, to carry the gospel, the good news, of salvation to people in your world. I don't know who they are, but the Holy Spirit does know. This week, let me encourage us, you and me, to ask the Holy Spirit every day, what are you calling me to do today? How can I live out the reality of the calling that you have given me based on the fact that you have set me apart as one of your own? Let's summarize, and then Marty will come and lead us in prayer and praise. First of all, the gospel is the good news that God loves people. His motive is love. And therefore, he sent his son Jesus to pay the penalty for their sin by dying in their place, so that whoever believes in Jesus will be forgiven and live in heaven forever. Number two, the gospel is about God's son Jesus, who was physically born as a descendant of David 
just as God promised in the scriptures. Number three, Jesus has always been God's son. But at his resurrection, he was appointed by his father as the reigning king over all creation. Number five, the gospel calls us to God for salvation and sends us out for service so that the name of Jesus will be honored when people trust and obey him. And lastly, Christians are set apart for both salvation and service. If you are saved, you should be serving. One of the things before Marty comes up, you're going to notice about Romans. It is a very dense letter. Every word, every space, every name in this book, of course, in all the Bible, has a meaning and purpose. So I appreciate so much you're staying with me because we're going to be unpacking this, and I can see some of you saying, how detailed is this going to get? It's going to get detailed, but here's the truth. This is superfood. This is nutrition, highly concentrated nutrition. So next week, Lord willing, read ahead. We're going to try and get through verse 17. Next week, Lord willing, 8 through 17. And, um, and then the week after that, Lord willing, we'll get into verse 18. I'm very, very excited about what the Holy Spirit's going to do here. And I deeply appreciate all of you and your faithfulness. Uh, love you all. And now that you know, do. You've been listening to Manna at Valley Baptist Church. To hear this lesson and more, subscribe to our podcast, Manna at Valley Baptist Church, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Manna is taught by Brad Hannock and meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California. We believe in doing life together, and we encourage you to join us on Sunday morning. For more information, visit manapodcast.com. Thank you for studying with us. And now that you know, do.